Good morning, Christ Chapel. Glad you guys are here. We're glad that uh, everyone is joining us, not only in this room, but also at Converge, out at West Campus, South Campus, on our internet campus. We're glad that you guys are here. This is going to be a great day of worship. It already has been, but I think we're going to really enjoy the text that we're going to get into today. Um, one of the things that at least is a part of my life is confusion. And if you talk to my family, in particular my wife, Janie, who's here with us today, uh, if you talk to my wife, uh, you talk to my family, they're going to say that maybe perhaps one of my defining characteristics is confusion. You might not know that by just talking to me, but I often get confused. I can't get from A to B. You know, this was about uh, 25 years ago. I was guest preaching at this little town in West Virginia at a church there. And um, while I'm there, we were supposed to have lunch with this elderly woman after the service, and I didn't know who it was. And so I'm walking down the, uh, in one part of the church, and this uh, elderly woman comes up to me, and she says, hi, my name is Dot. What's your name? And I said, oh, hi, Dot. My name's Bill. And we talked for a little bit. Probably about um, maybe 20, 30 minutes later, I'm in another part of the church, and Janie is standing there next to this elderly woman. And as I walk up, Janie says, oh, Bill, or he, she says, this is the person who we're going to have dinner with tonight. And she says to me, hi, my name is Dot. Well, I go into utter confusion. Two dots? And didn't I just meet this person? And so this mental problem starts into my head, and I can't get past the word dot. And so I start saying, duh, 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 duh. And while I'm saying that, dot says, and what's your name? And I'm like, duh, 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 bill. She looks at me kind of strangely. She says, duh, bill? And then we both looked at my wife, who's rolling her eyes at this point, because she knows exactly what's going on. And then she looks to Dot, and she says, his name is Bill. <laughs> you know, confusion, it just happens. And we're, I am constantly confused. In fact, it's sometimes a defining characteristic in my life. One of the things we're going to find from this text is the utter confusion of the disciples. If we want to say a defining characteristic for the disciples, it might be confusion. What I'd love to do is, as we start uh, just this, uh, the starting of this text, I'd love just to read the first portion of it, and just as you're listening to it, just think confusion, okay? I think maybe you'll be confused as well, but just think confusion as we're reading in verse, uh, we're going to start in verse 16, uh, verses 16, and just think confusion. In verse 16, Jesus is telling them, or just for a little context first, this is the uh, last night, Jesus is about to go to the cross the next day, and this has been a discourse that, or a, a talk that he's been giving to his disciples throughout the whole night, and this is actually the end of it. So they've been listening to him all night teach, and we get to this portion in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's saying to us? A little while you will not see me, and a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Well, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So they're having this private conversation. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourself? What I meant by saying, a little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And later on, as he explains what's going on, the disciples say, oh, finally we get it. If we read to the end of this text, they're like, finally, finally we understand. Finally we get it. And Jesus says in verse 32, do you now believe? 
Do you really understand? You're saying you understand. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you're going to leave me alone. That is, even after all of this, the disciples saying, oh, now we get it. And Jesus saying, not really, because you're about to ditch me in a minute as soon as things get tough. They did not understand. You know, that might be the defining characteristic at this point, confusion for the disciples. But I want to say that's our problem as well. We have great confusion in what is going on. And one of the reasons, the reasons why the disciples have it and the reason why we have it is because we're trusting in the wrong things. We're trusting in temporary hopes. The disciples were confused because they didn't understand what was about to happen. They had one expectation and something completely different happened. In today's passage, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what causes confusion, how we can gain some clarity from beyond that, and then what does life look like when we gain that clarity. You know, to begin with, I think we can start, uh, start this, uh, this time by just asking uh, this one idea, this central focused idea, and it's this, that when we place our hope in Jesus, we experience a joy, we experience a clarity of joy that, that makes sense no matter what the circumstances, that we hang on to that joy no matter what the circumstances. But first, we need to understand the confusion. We get confused and even devastated when we're trusting in temporary things. We get confused and and many times devastated when we trust in temporary things. And the reason why is because these temporary things, they fade or they go away. And when they go away, we don't know what to do. We get destroyed. We see this for sure in the disciples' uh, example. They were confused because they had a wrong expectation about Jesus. You see, they had, they had assumed that Jesus was going to be uh, a conquering king. And we get this confusion in this phrase, a little while. You guys might be confused about that as well, so I'm going to hopefully bring a little clarity to that. A little while, I'm not going to see you. In a little while, I am going to see you. What exactly is he talking about? You know, we, we're able to look at it from this side of, of history, and so now there's a lot more consensus on exactly what he's talking about. It's actually a very literal interpretation. What he's saying is, tonight is Thursday night. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be in a tomb. You're not going to see me. And then I'm going to resurrect, and you're going to see me again. When he says a little while, he's specifically talking about that time when he goes to the cross. And the disciples were confused about that because they didn't understand that he was going to have to die. And so it brought great sorrow. We read in verse 20, there's weeping and lamenting. In verse 22, that this, this is just a suffering and, and outright anguish. It's, it's a funeral type language that there's just this anguish that's going on in their lives. Now, why did that make a difference? Why did it so devastate them? Because they were trusting in the wrong thing. They were trusting in a conquering Savior. Now, they believed in Jesus. They'd given up their homes. They'd given up their professions. They'd given up their relationships. They'd followed him for three years, but they were following the wrong Jesus. We we see this in many times in the text, and we've discovered this, uh, I think, in some of the other teachings, where, like, for example, in Mark 10, they're arguing with one another who would be his top two lieutenants. Who gets to sit on the left and the right in this conquering kingdom that you're going to inaugurate? Or later on, they're walking past a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village refused them entry. And so one of the disciples says to Jesus, do you want me to rain down fire on that village and totally destroy it? They were thinking, we're coming as a conquering hero. We see in the garden, when Jesus is arrested, 
that um, Peter, he picks up a sword and he attacks one of the servants of the high priest because he wants to fight for this king. We find it as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and the whole town comes out and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What their, their rally cry is, this is the conquering king who has entered our city. It'd be much like if a president walks in the room and we sing, hail to the chief. It's like, this is the leader. He's going to lead us into a, a, a new world order, a new system. And so if that was their expectation, I think we can understand the devastation they felt when Jesus died. And he died just a few hours later. They put all their hope in this one thing, and suddenly they looked, and there he was on the cross, and he was dead. And when he died, they were devastated. The text reads, they scattered, they hid, they lied, they locked themselves in their, in their homes, and they mourned. Now, I want to pause here for just a second and simply reflect, if we don't do the same things time and time again, if we don't find ourselves in a state of confusion, just like the disciples, because we're trusting in something that's temporary. Now, in this room, perhaps, and I'm, I'm actually hopeful that there's quite a few folks that don't trust in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is, you just haven't got there yet, or you're still analyzing it, or maybe you're opposed to it. And perhaps on the internet, there's some folks as well that are just, uh, they're not there yet. I want to address that uh, crowd first. And I just want to, I'm not asking you to believe in Jesus. I'm just simply asking you to analyze what are the things that you do trust in? What are the things that you're hoping for? And then simply ask that question, or this question, will it last? Is it permanent or is it temporary? Just a couple of examples. You know, in the secular world that we live in, a lot of us trust in our ability to make a living. We trust in our bank accounts. We trust in um, just the skills that we have or some of the money that we have accumulated. It's a valid question. It's okay that you're trusting in that, but it is a valid question. Will it last? And if it doesn't, what happens? Are you destroyed? Are you devastated? The, the same type of question about a relationship. Sometimes we pour all of our trust into a particular relationship. But, you know, people betray us, and things happen to those relationships. Sometimes they go away. Some of us, maybe, we place our hope in our physical appearance, or at least the way that we dress, or our physical strength, or our athletic skills, or the way we look, or something like that. We put our hope and our trust in that portion. It's a good question to ask. Will it last? You know, not to uh, get too far down this road, but, I mean, we get old, right? <laughs> and we get out of shape, we'll put it that way. And uh, sometimes we get disfigured. Sometimes there's accidents, maybe dismembered, maybe handicapped, who knows what it is. But if you're trusting in your physical nature, it is a valid question to ask, will it last? And then if, if we come to the conclusion or admit that maybe it is a temporary nature, just, just analyze, well, what will happen if it goes away? Well, what about those of us who do believe in Jesus, that we do trust in him, I think we have the same type of question that we can ask because we don't get off the hook on this one either. Because although we, we say we trust in Jesus, functionally speaking, we have other saviors. I mean, I think we can all admit it, that we say we trust in Jesus, but functionally, we have other saviors. And you can see that by our worries or the things we get defensive about or from the anxieties that we have, or the things that we protect. 
You know, we might say we trust in Jesus, but our actions indicate that we have these functional saviors in our lives. Just give you a couple of examples. Sometimes we hear that the power of a country or the power of a political system is a savior, or we functionally believe in that. Christian nationalism, we see it all around us. Is that true or is it temporary? You know, on the other end of the spectrum, there are Christians who would say, you know, if we just had a more equitable political system or an equitable climate system or an economic system, then I'm going to put my trust in that, social justice. It's the, same, it's the same question for those Christians. Will it last? Is that really where we need to put our hope? And this is one I think that we can all uh, admit to, that we put our hope in our morality. We put our hope in, well, I'm a good person, or I do good things, or we're the good people. We do a lot of good things. And then we, we, we trust in that as our functional savior. And then I'll just admit myself, I find myself in the car getting cut off in traffic and raining down curses on that guy in front of me. He has no business being on the road because I'm trusting it. I'm realizing a disappointment in my own morality. Let's not just go with traffic. I mean, we trust in our own morality and then we find ourselves in a compromising situation or a disappointing situation. Somewhere where we didn't measure up to that standard that we thought we should have. What happens? We're devastated. We're destroyed. There's great confusion when we trust in temporary saviors. We've seen this with with the disciples here. They were devastated. I think we see this in our own lives as well. But I will say that we gain clarity, but especially joy, when we trust in the work of Christ. We gain clarity and especially joy when we trust in the work of Christ. Because his work, and I use that word very specifically, his work does not fade or is destroyed. It lasts. Let me just read John uh, 16, 20b through 22. John 16. Truly, truly, well, actually, I'll start at the beginning of the verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So now also you will have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy away from you. Now I use the word work here, that is when we trust in the work of Christ, very specifically because Jesus actually does a work on our behalf. And the Bible calls it the work of Christ. It's an action that he does for us that changes everything. And when we read this text, we we understand that he's actually equating it at this point with childbirth. That he's saying there'll be a season of sorrow, there'll be a season of anguish, followed by a lifetime of joy, a lifetime of hope. And when we read it, we have to understand this little while, how this plays into it. Because the little while I won't see you and a little while I will see you is actually bracketing a singular moment that's called the hour. He's actually bracketing a singular moment that Jesus calls the hour. It's referred to many times in scriptures. In John chapter 7, they're seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one lays a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, no one arrests him again because his hour had not yet come. We come to Thursday night, okay, the beginning of this discourse. In John chapter 13, verse 1, 
Jesus says this. Jesus, knows, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart this world, so he began to teach this discourse to his disciples by first washing their feet. That is, in John chapter 13, on Thursday night, he knew his hour had come, and so he begins this final discourse. We read in John chapter 16, we just now read it. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But that sorrow is overwhelmed by a joy of a new birth. That is the moment of greatest anguish is followed by a lifetime of the greatest joy. This is the work of Jesus. You see, at that moment of anguish, it's him going to the cross as a substitute for our sins. And what the moment of joy is, it's the resurrection when we see him again and he leads us into this new life with him. And when we have that new life, we're free from the fear and distresses of trusting in temporary things because we now have the lasting work of Christ behind us. But we can understand that. We can understand that he's talking about the cross. But I think intellectually we can ask this question, why? Why does him going to the cross help? That is, why did Jesus have to die, and why does his death on the cross give us an opportunity for this lasting relationship? You know, there's there's a lot of reasons that we can give for for that question, and there's a lot of theological and biblical reasons that we can come to that uh, we can discuss that question, why did Jesus have to die? But I want to give us just two practical ones, okay? So I just want to uh, say this is not exhaustive. There's a lot of other reasons why, but I want to give us two practical reasons why Jesus went to the cross. The first one would be this, because there was a relational debt that was owed. There was a relational debt that was owed if we want to be in relationship with God. That is, if, for, if the reason why God created us was to be in relationship with him, there was a fracture there. There was something that happened to that relationship. And because of that, there's this relational debt that needs to be paid for. This happened to me um, probably now about 20 plus years ago. Um, I was, uh, I read this article uh, that was a very clever article that was critical of a certain profession. And the profession's not important here, but it was very critical of this certain profession. And I had a friend who that's what he did for a living. And so I saw him at church the next week and I walked up to him and I started telling him about this really clever article that I'd read that was very clever in making fun of his profession. And so I was cleverly chatting along about this and that and that. And I looked up at his face and he didn't seem to think it was as clever as I did. But no matter, because I hadn't even got to the clever parts yet, and so I just kept on talking and talking and talking and rattling on. And then I went home, and I started thinking about it. And I thought, you know, he didn't seem to think it was as funny as I did. Uh, I maybe need to ask him about that next week. And so I purposely went and I found him the next week. And I walked up to him, and and I verbatim almost remember what I said. I said, you know, last week when I was telling you about that clever article, um, I know you weren't offended. I am positive that this didn't offend you. I mean, there's no way that you were offended, but just in case, um, you know, I'm sorry. And he said to me, he said, you know, actually, I've been thinking about this all week. Like, it depressed my whole week. I was angry, and I was mad, and I didn't know what to do with it, and I've been struggling all week with this. Well, now I had two problems. 
Because on the one hand, I needed to apologize for the first thing, but now I needed to apologize for my apology, right? And there was absolutely nothing I could say at this point to make it right. I mean, there literally was nothing I could say to fix what I had just done. And so my friend, he had two, he had, uh, two uh, issues, or he had two ways to respond. He could either make me pay, or he could pay. What I mean by this is he could make me pay. There's plenty of things he could do. He could be mad at me. He could uh, cut me off. He could not have any communication with me. He could rightfully so talk, behind, talk to other people about me. He could make me pay for that. Or he could take that hurt or absorb that hurt upon himself and just continue the relationship, which is exactly what he did. Either I bore it or he bore it, but either way, it was a real hurt. You know, we insult God every single day. We really do. We insult him in our words, in our actions. We insult him in how we treat, we treat his creation. We insult him by how we treat the things that he created, uh, the, the people that he created. We insult him by how we treat ourselves. It doesn't actually take a, a, a lot of um, thought to come up with an example where you or I have been unkind or thoughtless or we've used dismissive words, or we've had hurtful actions. And even our apologies at times just seem inadequate to fix the problem. And many times it makes it worse. These actions are actually destroying our relationship with our creator God. And they make it impossible, literally impossible, for, for us to have a relationship with him. You know, when Jesus goes to the cross, he's basically saying this. I want a relationship with you and I will bear that hurt for myself, upon myself. I will take that hurt to make this relationship possible. Isaiah 53, 4 puts it this way. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. That he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement was brought, upon, uh, brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. We know this familiar passage, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God is saying, I want a relationship with you and I will pay the emotional cost. I will pay the relational debt that is owed and I'll do it myself and I'll do it on the cross. He absorbs that relational hurt upon himself. You know, we might understand that, that he absorbs this relational hurt upon himself but I think we do have another question we can ask. Why didn't he just do like my friend did and simply absorb it? You know, why didn't he just have a hurt feeling? Why did he have to die? Why death? You know, if there was a relationship that needed, uh, death that needed to be owed, why not just a hurt feeling or a slap or a whip? But why death? And I think we get a clue to this at the beginning of the night. At the beginning of the night, on Thursday night, I mean, uh, Peter has a question for Jesus. He says this. He says, I, where are you going, Lord? And he's implying, I want to go with you. And Jesus says this. He says, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me later. It sounds very familiar to John 16, 16. Um, you won't see me for a little while, and then you will see me after that. He's telling Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. He's telling Peter, even if you want to follow me to the cross, you cannot follow me to the cross. 
but you'll see me later. You'll see me after the cross. It's important for us to understand that Jesus, he went to the cross alone. And in dying, particularly dying, he puts to death any possibility of us adding anything to it or having our hand in our own salvation. There's literally nothing left to do. He did it all. There's nothing else we can do. The, the thing is, we always want to have a hand in our own salvation. Like, we always want to, like, um, uh, clean up our act or do a good thing or feel some remorse or show enough devotion to earn his salvation. And by dying, Jesus is saying, we don't get to participate. We only get to receive. The only thing we bring to our own salvation is our need for a savior. And when we understand we need a savior, that's called repentance. We bring that to the Lord and we say, that's it. And everything else comes from him. Salvation is a gift. We need to let that sink in. He made it impossible. Well, first off, by dying on the cross, he made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. But also by dying on the cross, he made it impossible for us to add anything to it. This is really good news. You know, verse 20b says, your sorrow will be turned to joy. In verse 22, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. Why can't it be taken away? Because it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on us. God wants a relationship with us and he made it possible himself. Can you see why this is both joyful and freeing in our lives? You know, all the ways that we seek to um, obtain security or retain security uh, through uh, or, or attain or retain love, joy, happiness, contentment, beauty. These all are things that when we try to do it ourselves, they depend on us and we fail. But in Christ, we don't get to participate. He did it 100%. And so there are works that we do in this world. We work in our, our jobs, in our relationships, in our money. We work uh, to obtain beauty. The thing about it is, those are important, but they no longer have a controlling voice in our joy. Hurt still hurts, don't get me wrong, and suffering is still suffering, but the joy is no longer attached to it, and therefore we're free from worrying about those things. You know, that's really good news, and I want to say that this, maybe you're thinking, oh, this is good news for a new believer, but not for me. I've been in Christ for, you know, 30 years. Let me tell you, this is the anthem call of a mature Christian. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. You know, that's the anthem cry of a mature Christian because a mature Christian knows that and then he lets it sink in to every area of his life. That is, what about your finances? What about this? What about that? All we have to let sink in and let the salvation of God know is that Jesus paid it all. It's all to him I owe. And then we respond from there. This is for believers and non-believers. Believers, this is for new Christians. It's for mature Christians. It is the essence of all that we do. But you know, there's even better news attached to this. And this is what the final part of this text tells us. That is not only does he give us the salvation, we now have this brand new relationship with God our Father who helps us in these tough times, in the confusing times. He's there for us now because of our relationship with God to help us through these tough times. You know, in Christ, our life in him now includes a new relationship with God that gives peace in a world of confusion because God, as our Father, promises to listen and respond to our prayers. Let me just read. These are some excerpts or some portions of John 16, 23 through 33. I'm just going to read a portion of these. Listen to the words of Jesus. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. And you will receive it that your joy may be made full. He goes on. I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And then in verse 33, I say these things that you might have peace. In this world there will be tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What he's saying is that now that we understand this and we accept Jesus for everything, we now have this relationship with our Father that we can come to him not asking through Jesus, but we ask in Jesus' name, and it makes a difference. We have a relationship with the Father that just changes everything. My son, uh, Joseph, who's here today too, uh, my son, Joseph, he's a senior in high school. He has a group of friends, and many times Joseph will say, hey, Dad, can I have um, some friends over tonight? Our house isn't, uh, we have one big room, so when his friends are over, it kind of takes up the whole house. And uh, so he asked me, hey, can I have some friends over? I remember the first time he said that, hey, can I have some friends over? I said, yeah. And so I'd be at home and the doorbell would ring and I'd answer the door and there'd be someone, uh, one of his friends, and he said, hi, Mr. Hampton. Joseph said, you know, that we're coming over to uh, do something. He said, yeah, come on in. So I'd meet him. So that's the way things happened for a while. But then later on, hey, dad, can I have some friends over? Oh, yeah, sure. And then I'm in the kitchen doing something and I look up and there's some kid I don't know. He's like, oh, hey, Mr. Hampton, how's it going? Oh, hey, how are you? Uh, hey, can I get a glass of water? Yeah, sure, let me get you a cup and I'll get him a glass of water. We had a different relationship because they were friends of Joseph and they felt this freedom to come into my house, ask for my help, feel at home, and this relationship with me was because they first had a relationship with my son. You know, keep this mental picture in mind, that is of his friends walking up the steps, not even glancing at the doorbell, grabbing the handle, walking into the house, coming on into the kitchen and saying, hey, Mr. Hampton, mind if I glad, uh, grab a glass of water? Keep that mental picture in mind as I read verse 25. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. We have a relationship with God the Father because we know his son. And what does that relationship look like? Looks like? It means that we can trust God our Father for our futures. It means that he is for us. He's not against us. It means that even when we don't understand, he understands. It means that all the things that are happening in our lives are actually working for our good, even the tough stuff. It means that we have a good father who will answer us when we call. It doesn't mean that there, that there won't be tough things, but it rather means that the outcomes of those tough things are for our good, and we can trust God. We have peace even in the hard times. As verse 33 says, um, I've said these things that you might have peace. In this world, there's going to be tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You know, what does a life look like that has this power to pray in Jesus' name? What does a, a life look like um, that understands the relationship that we have with God because he paid for it all? I just, as the missions pastor here at Christ Chapel, um, I'm privileged many times to meet people from all around the world that, um, from various cultures and countries, many of whom live under some terrible persecution. That is, for example, we heard about it in East Asia. 
uh, that these churches are under tremendous pressure many times and persecution from their central government. That is, they restrict travel, they jail churchgoers and leaders, they ban Bibles, there's evictions from homes, there's losses of jobs, people get kicked out of college, they don't have a future. There's often just outright hatred. I was recently uh, uh, in a room with this one woman, uh, uh, she's from China, and she uh, was a leader, she is a leader actually, in her church there in China. And she was expressing this one example for us. And I wanted to share this example for you as what it looks like to live in Jesus' name. And I think this is an encouragement for us as well. She was talking about, uh, and this was several years ago, she was detained for 30 days uh, in the jail. That Because she was a Christian, they came into her church, they arrested her, and they put her in jail for 30 days, which is a common practice. And while she was in jail, she had to uh, write out um, uh, basically a journal that they would read later that they wanted to use to see where her thoughts were and maybe to have some accusations against her. So she had to constantly writing. And she said, I wrote three things. Number one, I, I complimented them on the cleanliness of the facility. She said, you know, I was expecting it to be uh, unkept and dirty and it actually is quite clean and I just want to tell you that you're doing a pretty good job. She said that I expressed gratitude for the hospitality that was shown to me. That is, there were uh, prostitutes and thieves and, um, and uh, drug addicts in the, in the jail with me, but they were actually quite kind to me and they showed me the ropes of prison and how to do ramen noodles and things like that. Help me adapt to prison life. So she said, thanks for the hospitality. She said, when I'm outside, I'm working all the time and I'm constantly tired but that this, this time here in jail actually gave me a, a chance to rest. And so I want to say thank you for that. And she's not being insincere. This isn't just fake stuff. She's, she's expressing her gratitude for the position that she's in. When she was ready to be released, they had the release papers that she needed to get out of the jail. And so they had this in one hand, and they had another document that they wanted her to sign. They said, you need to sign this that says that you will no longer go to church, that you'll disavow Christianity, and you're not going to hang out with those people anymore. And this is what she said. She said, I told them that that document really has no power because it cannot replace God. And so whether I sign it or not is actually not the big a deal, but I know that if I do sign it, you'll use it against my friends, and so I'm not going to sign it. But beyond that, she said, the government does not have the authority over my worship or my affections, and so I will continue to worship Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And she said, I'm going to do this, whether I'm free or in prison, if I'm alive or dead. You know, does this sound like a sorrowful believer under persecution? Or does this sound like someone who can pray in Jesus' name? Someone who's living out, verse 33, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome this world. You know, as Christians, we, we learn, or we have to learn from our church family around the world who are experiencing Intense duress sometimes, and yet they can do it in ways that show the joy of Christ in their lives and the things that they're trusting in are not temporary but permanent. They're not insisting on their rights. They're actually caring for their enemies first. They're being filled with a joy of the utter dependence on God, and they're showing great courage because they know that Jesus has overcome sin and death. He's overcome this world of tribulations, and they can count on that. So as I close today, I just want us to learn the same lessons, to learn to trust in the finished work of Christ in every area of our life, really to learn to trust in Jesus' name. You know, if you don't know Jesus, 
if that's where you are today, I just want to ask you to consider him. That is, he really did provide a way to be in relationship with God. And it's not based, it's not based on the cultural viewpoint. And it's not a superior pride of morality. It's not on something at all that we could do or can even attempt to do. It's simply based on letting go of the temporary hopes that we're trusting in and looking at the finished work of Christ that he did on our behalf and saying, yes, I want to be in relationship with the God who created me. And then for the rest of us, verse 24, ask in the name of Jesus, ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full, that we learn to pray and live in such a way that reflects that we know God and that he's already won. In verse 33, it means we have peace, we have joy. It means that we're part of his family with access to his house. And it's something that can't be taken away from us. And most importantly, I want to say it's something that's available to everyone who would simply ask from Jesus. You know, um, we're, we're going to move into a time of prayer as we conclude in this message today. And I specifically want us to pray for the persecuted church. We've talked about um, some of the messages that we've, we've um, some of the, uh, at least this one woman that, that shared and Doug had shared some of the things that are happening around the world as well. I want us to take a time and just reflect and to pray for the persecuted church. This is going to be in all the venues as well. So we're going to lead us in a time of, of uh, pastoral prayer for the church around the world. But before I do that, let me just uh, read a recent passage or message I, that I received from a Christian leader who's in China right now. This is what he wrote. This is helpful as we think about how we can pray for our friends around the world. He says, don't worry about us. The co-workers are ready. That is, they're ready to be incarcerated. The thing to worry about is that we, that we, he's talking about himself as well, we always have way too much anger first in front of the law enforcement. I hope that I will manifest the power of the gospel with great patience in the midst of persecution and show inner strength and greatest restraints. You know, there's so many areas of uh, persecution for the Christians around the world, and at the same time, there's strength and courage and even joy. Uh, there's one Christian brother, a Chinese brother that I know of, who put it this way. He said, don't think of us as the persecuted church. We are a church that is allowed to share in the sufferings of Christ. I loved the way he expressed that. You know, if you want more information on the persecuted church in general, uh, just you can Google it on the website, and you're going to find all sorts of different uh, web-based places, including Voice of the Martyrs, that you can get more information on just what's going on around the world. But as a congregation, I do want us just to spend just a moment to pray for the persecuted church. So with that, let me, let me just lead us in prayer. Father, uh, <laughs> we can only acknowledge that you paid for it all and it's all to you that we owe. We thank you for this night that you gave the disciples to clear up their confusion And we thank you for what you did on the cross the next day. We thank you for the resurrection and that you've shown us that there is uh, a life with you. And now that you've promised us that we can trust in you and we can ask in the Father's name or ask the Father because we know you. There's believers all around the world that know that as well and we want to lift them up in prayer. So first off, let's just as a congregation, let's just pray for those who are now in prison right now that their families would be cared for, and that while they're in prison, they would have a strong witness to those around them. In 
In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul writes, For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength, and so we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the death sentence, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. With this in mind, let's just pray that those believers under duress right now, that they would draw from that strength of power. That is, we rely on a God, not on ourselves, but on a God who can raise from the dead. Let's just pray that they would know that power. In Luke chapter 7, or 6, in verse 27, Paul writes, I say this to you who hear that you should love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Let's just pray for their ability to love their enemies and that this love would be a bold witness for you. And finally, let's ask God to give us the same type of heart as we face difficulties. That is not demanding our rights, but having a concern and love for the lost as we uh, will at times also be persecuted. Let us have that same attitude as well. Let's just pray for that in ourselves. Lord, what a great passage you have given us. Um, what a great relationship that you've given us with Christians all around the world that we can lift up in prayer. What a great message that you've told us, that is, you've said these things that we might have peace, that uh, there will be tribulation in this world, but we can take heart, we can have courage because we know that you have overcome this world. Lord, thank you for that and thank you for son, your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.